Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell. Come sit with me, life in poetry, prose, and plays. Shares the life journey of my dear friend and older sister, Dr. Gladys Devane, in poems, short stories, and theater. Illustrations are provided by another good friend, Danielle Bruce, and the book is published by Jewel Jordan Publishing. From the incredibly moving poem, When This World Was Mine, detailing her young life on her grandparents' farm with her sibling and cousins, to the least of them, which is an account of the devastating news that her firstborn was severely disabled and in need of institutionalization, to the triumph of his high school graduation, work life, and living on his own. Through this literary masterpiece, we are privileged to travel with Gladys on her journey through a rich and extraordinary life. We gleam how she has come to see the world through her own eyes and those of historical figures such as Fannie Lou Hamer and Rosie Parks, whom she brought to life first in theatrical one-woman show performances and now in print. Dr. Devane dedicates the book to the two strong, influential women who raised her, her grandmother and her mother. This author, thespian, playwright, narrator, and co-founder of Resilience Productions joins us now to discuss the poignant memoir. And Dr. Gladys Devane, welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, Gladys. And, you know, I'm talking to friends here, but but I'll try to keep it civil because we have a listening audience. But, uh, hey, I'm I'm all for just opening the book and just reading line by line for an hour. But uh, (laughs) that's that's not what people want to hear. Fascinating work. And... I did not include in the description of you, Griot. I should have, but I thought, no, people wouldn't understand what it meant. But a Griot is one who tells the stories of the lineage of a family, of a tribe, of a village, uh, is the one who is the, the oral historian and inspirer. And that is you. All the time that I've known you, when you made this great progression from semi-retirement, I love that word retirement because no one adheres to retirement. This is, come on. But you you shifted to theater and writing. And uh, I will say the final thing, I'm gonna let you and Liz get into a conversation. I have some questions for you, but uh, it just so happened today. And the day is March the 20th. We are, we are recording the show a day before it airs on tomorrow, the 21st. I'm sitting at home and I turn on PBS and I see the legacy of Mary Bateman Clark narrated by Gladys Devane. I about fell out my chair. 
because I, I'm calling my daughter because she's all into history. I said, you got to see this. You got to see this. She's oh yeah, I've seen that before. It's like, oh, Sam, you know, <laughs> but uh, you did such a phenomenal job. And, and we heard the story of, of Mary Bateman and Polly here on Bring It On several years back. So with that, um, Gladys, welcome to Bring It On. I just want to do that little intro for those who have not formally heard or seen you in action um, on the stage or narrating or what have you. So I'm going to turn this over to Liz now, and I'll let Liz uh, ask the first question. Well, the first question that's been on my mind, Gladys, and for our listening audience, who would think that you wrote this book for African-Americans, explain to the dominant race why it's for them too, it's for anybody. It definitely is for everybody. Uh, When I put this book together, I was thinking in terms of how could it be used across generations, across uh, ethnicities, um, because it tells stories. Uh, It tells stories of real people, uh, their struggles, their triumphs, um, and the poetry invites one to reflect, uh, to think about life, to think about one's position in this world. Uh, And so it's it's for everybody. Okay. Well, do you have a favorite poem or or anything that this really probably the whole book resonates with you because you wrote it? It's a, so. But what really kind of tears you up? Which one of those stories is kind of emotional for you? Well, the, probably the one that strikes home hardest uh, is the story of the least among them. Uh, because that is the story of my oldest son, who was who was born severely uh, handicapped, uh, and we did. It was the diagnosis was slow. Um, he looked normal. He was a beautiful child. In fact, I used to refer to him as my little porcelain doll. Uh, gorgeous baby, but all of the developmental milestones were delayed. Uh, he didn't uh, laugh and babble, and he was he. I, I described him as a good baby. Um, and uh, when I really began to question, you know, he he's not doing the things that he should be doing. Um, everybody kept saying, "Oh, you're just an old anxious mother," um, and finally. I convinced uh, the doctors wouldn't even give me a referral to a, a specialist because they thought I was just an old anxious mother. At that time, I was a clinical speech pathologist and I knew about normal development and I knew that he was missing the milestones. Uh, and so this is the story of the journey through discovering that he was severely mentally handicapped, dealing with the doctor's pronouncement, well, he'll be, you should institutionalize him, uh, you know, by the time he's, you know, a teenager. Um, And the story talks about the influence that this child has had on the entire family and how often we learn uh, lessons 
where we are least expecting to learn those lessons, the lessons that we have learned uh, having Glenn and the family and watching him grow and develop and dealing with uh, a person who is often considered the least among us and how much he has taught us. So I think that is the story that probably resonates with me the most. Well, I know you said the truth when you said he was so beautiful. I was looking through your mother-in-law's photo album and came across the photo of this, the prettiest baby I had ever seen. I said, who is this? And that was Glenn. You are right. You talking about picture perfect, beautiful baby. And yeah, you're right about that. And that, and who would think that he had a problem when you looked at that photo? <laughs> but Gladys, uh, out of all the years that you've been in theater and interested in writing, why now? Why this book and why now? Um, that's a good question. You know, a lot of times we are brainwashed into believing that we are less than who we are or what we are, that we, that our, our abilities or capacities are limited. I never thought of myself as even capable of writing a book. Uh, it was those really brilliant people that write books, <laughs> not me. <laughs> um, and then along came COVID. And uh, I had been, after, after retiring, I had been writing short stories, uh, one woman performances, um, doing all of those things that a person who writes a book, he does them all the time. But I never thought in terms of, I'm a writer. Uh, I thought more of myself as a storyteller. Um, and along came COVID and I had this bulk of material that I had written. And I thought, I think I need to put this together in a book. And um, that's where the thought came. And then I <clears throat> worked with Danielle, uh, selecting you know, what we would uh, include and tweaking it and and she uh, provided the illustrations uh, and ultimately Come Sit With Me was born. Okay, okay, very good. Um, another question I had, you know, I need to write stuff down because <laughs> I have questions and then I go, okay, where'd that question go? <laughs> um, it is, is there anything that would that would suggest that you need to, uh, or how would you tell your younger self what they should have done to prepare for what you're doing now? If you were gonna talk to the, to the 18 or 19 year old Gladys, what would you tell her to prepare for what you're doing now? Or had you prepared at that time? Uh, the answer to that question is no. Um, I, I was, I started uh, at that time, I was nine years old when I, uh, 10 years old, when I started, um, we call them dramatic readings. Mm -hmm. My aunt was um, 
very much into communication and uh, presenting yourself in a positive light. And I guess she saw something in me at age 10 that I just hadn't even thought about. Uh, and she started working with me in reciting poems, um, James Weldon Johnson's Book of Sermons, uh, God's Trombones, uh, from the creation to Judgment Day. Um, she worked with me and and giving those uh, presenting those poems on stage and recitals. And so that's how I started. And by the time I was 15, I was giving full blown recitals. Uh, in fact, I have a program uh, that I think I was 15 uh, when I did that program and I did the complete book of James Weldon Johnson uh, from creation to judgment day. Uh, I was a thespian in high school uh, uh, in all the plays. Uh, I was I did dramatic readings and contests. Uh, then I went off to college, Oklahoma State University. It was right after they integrated the schools. I participated in uh, the thespian club at Indiana University, but of course at that time there were no parts, a very few parts for uh, African-Americans. Um, so I didn't get much experience on stage there. And then I graduated and married and um, I put that on the back burner. I did not set foot on stage again until I retired. Uh, and when I retired, I decided, hmm, now I can devote my time to what I really enjoy doing, which is theater. But now I'm 65 years old uh, and I'm saying that I want to devote my time to theater. Come on, let's be realistic. <laughs> there, there no, I mean, well, I, I hadn't really thought it through, but um, I went to the Department of Theater and Drama. And I said, I'm retired faculty and I would like to uh, sit in your theater classes so that I can tool up. I wanna go back on stage. And uh, <laughs> I will never forget the reaction, that, uh, uh, the reaction of the department chair when I said to him that I wanted to audit uh, theater classes. He said, do you realize how old these kids are in these classes? I said, yeah. So the average age is probably 19. You want to sit in class with 19-year-olds? I said, well, I'm not in the class to, uh, I said, uh, I'm in the class to learn what's going on. It doesn't bother me. I said, and if it bothers them, it's their problem. And it was probably one of the most wonderful experiences uh, that I've had interacting with those youngsters and uh, getting back on stage and tooling up to start doing the thing that I really love. And so that's what brought me back on the stage. I had not been on stage for, oh, what, 40 years? I don't know, uh, from the time I married and 63 until 
19 until 203. So that was a long time. Yeah, yeah. So that's what got me back on this. Uh, uh, that's what reintroduced me to theater. And then I discovered, well, if you really want to be on stage, you're going to have to do something. Uh, you're going to have to take the ball and run with it yourself because there are no parts for 65-year-old Black women uh, in Bloomington, uh, or, or at least very few. And so I started writing one woman, uh, one person shows um, in addition to doing other things. And so that what that's what brought me back. So if you ask me, what would I say to a young person? I would say to a young person, take care of business. Do what you know must be done. Mm -hmm. And when you decide you want to do something, don't look at why it cannot be done look at how it can be done. When I look back on my life, I think the first oh, 40 years of my life or so, I took care of business. I took care of my family. I raised my family. I raised a son who was severely handicapped. I did all of those things that I needed to do. I, 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 I completed a PhD degree. I, 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 I did the professional things, the family things. And then when it was time for me to step out of that phase of my life and step into another phase of my life, I said to myself, okay, what is it you want to do? And then I figured out how to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. ID time, Clarence. Yes, it is. And for those who just joined us, that very familiar voice, uh, a voice that caught my attention this afternoon before we went on, uh, before we started recording today, is none other than Dr. Gladys DeBain, a longtime Bloomington resident and uh, an impactful individual and an inspirational individual. Well, she just authored a work entitled Come Sit With Me, and she's joining us to share some wonderful insights from her book, and she just spent some time talking about what um, what molded her and motivated her as she was going through different stages of her life, as, as we all are. Um, one thing I want to ask you, I, I do know that you have connections to Oklahoma. Yes. And now your grandmother and your mother, were they both residents of Oklahoma or, or were you sort of a transplant into Oklahoma? Well, my grandmother was in Texas. My mother was in Oklahoma. Uh, shortly after I was born, my mother sent me to Texas to live with my grandmother. Okay. Um, and her reason for that was she said, I could not work and take care of my children. And I wanted them to be in the hands of someone that I knew would take care of them. So she sent me and my sister uh, to my grandmother. Uh, and I lived with my grandparents, my grandmother and grandfather, uh, uh, un until I was nine and a half uh, years old. My grandfather passed. And then my grandmother closed the farm and moved to Oklahoma uh, and uh, where my mother was. And at that time, she lived three houses down on the same block as my mother. And so I, I was, I had that influence of my grandmother uh, all of my life. 
she passed away when I was 21 years old. Um, so that's how I got from Texas, where my grandparents were, to Oklahoma, where my mother was. And you dedicate this book to both your grandmother and your mother. Right. Were there any stories around the dinner table about their recollections of either family members or what they had heard about the Tulsa race riot? No, I had never heard anything about the Tulsa race riot until I was in college. Interesting. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and not because they were they were ignorant of what happened. It's just that it was some the topic that was not discussed. It, it was just a topic that just wasn't discussed. So much was not discussed. Right. Um, in the poem, the, the when the world was mine, uh, that 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 traces my my life on the farm with my grandmother. If you look at the way that poem is framed, it becomes very obvious that even though I was in Texas, even though there was. Jim Crow, there was segregation, there was, it was not focused on by my parents, by my grandparents. I, it was, I, we, we led a sheltered life. Mm -hmm. uh, and they protected us from that. Um, and a lot of things just were not talked about. Right. Uh, I, I remember one incident in Texas, um, I guess there was Camp Swift in Texas. Um, and I don't know, I think it's an army camp, but one of the servicemen there had kidnapped a, a, a person, a, a child, and raped this child and killed the child. And uh, well, my grandparents didn't tell us what had happened but they taught us to fear soldiers. Ooh. I was terrified of soldiers because she, you know, they didn't explain to us why, you know, why we were to fear them, why we to, were to stay, why we were to you know, make sure that you know, we stayed away. So it was their way of, I guess, trying to protect us, not really telling us about the awful, terrible things that were going on. Yeah. You know, as um, I read the description of your book and it talks about essays of your life, um, one thing upon arriving in Bloomington, what was your impression now? Now, Gene, your husband, Gene, does he hail from uh, Oklahoma or was he in Indianapolis or how did no, you he was in North Carolina. He was in North Carolina. I met him in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. He had been in service and he had been discharged from service. Uh, he, they brought him back to Tinker Airboard, Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. I'm in Midwest City, Oklahoma, which is just right next door to sort of like Ellettsville to Bloomington right. Right. Uh, and discharged him there. I was in high school when I met him mm -hmm. uh, and I graduated from high school and went to Oklahoma State University. He went off to Creighton University, and but we maintained contact. He would come back to Oklahoma uh, for the summer. He would come, you know, for vacations. 
uh, and then we married when I graduated from, from uh, college. And both of us then came to Indiana. Um, your involvement with the Cardinal Stage Actors and the Bloomington Playwrights Project uh, is just renowned because I think you took them by storm. Just yeah. like, <laughs> just like the the chairperson of the department saying, "Do you know how old these <laughs> students are? <laughs> you want to learn with them?" I, I think when you got on stage, because you have a, such a command when you're on stage, and when you get in character, you really are just caught up in the life of that character. It's not like you're channeling the person or anything, but you have done your research. You have the, the, the dialect. You, of course, you're, you, have, you have period dress that you're wearing. And you have a way of just taking the, the audience member on a journey. And you're teaching them. And you're infusing humor. And you're talking about stark realities. And everybody's different at the, at the end of, of all that they've just experienced. And so that is not only just an actor, but an educator. So you brought your educating uh, tools to the stage. Thank you. One of my, my primary goal, I, I tell Danielle, our director all of the time, um, she is, she is uh, I collaborate with her a lot on writing uh, when I'm writing a piece that I know she's going to direct. Um, and I say to her, I want the audience to leave knowing something that they didn't know when they came in. I want this to be entertaining, but most of all, I want it to be informative or educational. So when I write, I write with that in mind. And, and it comes across, uh, and, and not only just uh, the dramatic points of, of say, uh, a delivery, or maybe even the well-timed pause to get the audience to think about what they just heard. And, um, and, and, and when you and, it wasn't Liz, but you both were enacting the two sisters. That wasn't. Oh, the Delaney sisters. Yeah, yeah that yeah. wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was a young, that was a young lady from Indianapolis. Okay. That was, that was mesmerizing. And of course those two sisters, the actual sisters, just turn the world upside down with just telling their, their life stories. Daniel Bruce, uh, who has partnered with the two of you on many different projects. I, I, we, we could spend an hour and a half talking about that. She brings a rare gift to this friendship, this team that, that you two have assembled. And she's such a gifted individual. But I was really surprised yes. to see that she did the illustrations. I didn't know that she had art graphic talents as well as writing. Oh, and yes. Oh, okay. yes. Oh, yes. There's nothing her, that girl can't do. Her art, her art is just fantastic. Okay. Uh, she does, she does sculptures. She does, I, I can't talk about it intelligently, uh, canvas. Uh, she does, uh, what is it? The, stuff. The, a char, the charcoal. She does, you name it, she does it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And her artwork is sold everywhere. Yeah. And, and her artwork is all over the country. 
Really? And, and okay. see, she grew up in a, a family of artists. Her both, her both her mother and father were had a theater, their own theater, and plus her mother was an art. Her father, her father was an artist, uh, and so she she's just talented. She is mm. just very, very talented. And we've had the pleasure of having her on for conversations too, but. Uh... When I saw that she was a part of this project and did the illustration, I said, well, number one, you both do things, all three of you do things at an excellent level. So I can't wait. Liz, I'll turn things over to you. Okay. Since you brought up Resilience Productions, which is the three of us, Daniel Bruce, Dr. Gladys Devane, and myself, Elizabeth Mitchell, here you have uh, everybody with their own specific talent that they love to do. I love to research. I can sit and research all day long. Gladys don't want to sit in a library or somewhere all day long. But I love the fact that Gladys can write. I don't feel confident in my writing, even though I can write something for a presentation, but it was Gladys. She, Gladys, has taken me places that I never dreamed I would go. Never, it just, that wasn't on my radar. My when I retired, I go, I'm traveling. And, and so I credit Gladys for just making things happen for me in my life to where I, I felt like I didn't start living till I retired, till I got together with Gladys and Danielle. But I wanted Gladys to tell our listening audience, she has portrayed so many powerful Black women and the audience has appreciated each one of these women. But Gladys, which one resonates with you the most out of, of all the women that you've betrayed? That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, it, it's sort of a toss up. Um, Elizabeth, a woman of color. Yes. I, I really, that one really, really resonates with me. But I created a character that's a fictitious character that happens to be my favorite, I believe, my favorite character. Uh, the title of uh, the story is What Little Missy Didn't Know. Um, and it's the story of a woman born in slavery that taught herself to read. Um, she was befriended by a white woman, um, a, a Quaker, uh, but little Missy was Massa's little girl. And little Missy had everything that any little kid could ever want. And little Missy would insist on, uh, on Sarah holding her book uh, while she read. Hold my book while I read. I'm so smart. I'll show you. And the, the way the story is told is she would hold that book because she knew if she didn't hold that book, she would be in big trouble. But while she was holding that book, she was looking and listening and learning them words. And so she taught herself to read. And the story ends with her. She has collected all of these books and she has them hidden away down in this basement like place where they had where she stayed. Uh, and <clears throat> the gist of the story, she had gone, <clears throat> she had traveled as a slave all over the world through these books. 
And she had taught herself to do this. I think that's probably my favorite story because it, it, to me, it shows the uh, resilience of a person, the determination of a person, uh, the, the attitude that you cannot draw any boundaries in which I must stay. I will set my own boundaries, even if I have to do it secretly. So I think that probably is my favorite, but it's a fictitious character. Okay, well, I'm hoping, Gladys, that the next two stories I told you about recently, that one or both will become your favorite. <laughs> and, and that's of um, Granny Gann, uh, 116 Peaches. Yes. And then uh, Clarence and I had told you about Tevis, the slave woman who inherited. I can see you portraying both of those women. Uh, right now, I am working on... Um, I am working on um, Francis Harper telling, uh, telling a story about a speech that she had given. She's giving a speech about a speech. And I'm finding that really, really interesting. She is, she is coming back to visit us today. And she is telling us about that speech that she gave 150 years ago. And she is talking about how the same thing she said in that speech 150 years ago is true today. Uh, and, and, and I'm finding that really challenging and really very exciting. And I think the end product is going to be um, pleasing to the audience. For our listening audience who don't know, Tell them who Francis Harper is. Okay, Francis Harper uh, was born uh, was born out of slavery. Her mother died in in Boston. Her mother died. Her parents died, and her father, who was a minister, raised her. She was an activist. She was an educator. She was a poet. She was a novelist. And she was really into um, suffrage, uh, both for men and women. Um, and she carried the banner and she carried it long and strong. And uh, very few people know about the, her contributions. Very few people. Looking forward to that. Well, I, I like to um, ask a question about an advocate that all of us have heard about and someone who you portrayed back in 2018 for the city of Bloomington. And as educator and thespian, you became, for all intents and purposes, Rosa Parks. And you helped the city of Bloomington uh, dedicate a special place in our city. And this is the 105th birthday of Rosa Parks. And you got on a bus and rode to the newly renovated transit center where you delivered an account of Rosa Parks' famous 1955 Montgomery bus ride to a large audience that included teachers and school children. Tell us about that experience. Oh, that was a wonderful experience. Um, we, we had been invited to do a program uh, 
for, uh, for Bloomington. And at the same time, the new transit system had just been built. And um, we thought, well, how, what a wonderful way to bring together, to show off the new transit system because they were the one that was asking us to do uh, a program for them. Uh, let's do Rosa Parks and let's have Rosa Parks ride the bus. So I dressed as Rosa Parks. I left my house and once I stepped out of my house, I became Rosa Parks and I was Rosa Parks until the end of the show and I was back in my car coming home. But I, 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 I rode over to the west side of town where I was met by the mayor, uh, Reverend Rose, the pastor of Second Baptist Church, uh, the head of the transit system. And I boarded the bus as Rosa Parks uh, along with a, a faction of the Second Baptist Church choir and all the way to town, they were singing and, and, and making merry and people on the bus kind of, you know, didn't know what was going on. Uh, but this was in celebration of the Rosa Parks uh, desegregation of the transit system in Montgomery. So the bus drives all the way through Bloomington on its regular route. We arrive at the station, at the bus station. The photographers are there uh, because the paper has announced that Rosa Parks will be appearing. The school children are there with their parents and teachers and Rosa Parks steps from the bus and is escorted into the, um, uh, into the uh, bus uh, uh, station, into the bus depot. And uh, then they start the ceremony and introduce Rosa Parks and she tells her story. And probably the thing that I will remember most about that is the, the little girl that ran up to me afterwards and said to me, it was, but we were celebrating Rosa Parks' birthday. And, and she handed me a rose and said, happy birthday, Mrs. Parks. <laughs> and I will never forget that. <laughs> You know, I, I think you've had a, a lot of those moments over the years where uh, not only the young, but older people were, have been touched by your portrayals of different characters, both live and, and uh, both uh, real and, and make-believe. And these are long-lasting impressions. And we look at today in our society and we really look at what people are going through. There's a lot of stress and tension right now everywhere, be it a pandemic, be it the nonsense that's going on overseas in Ukraine, be it just things that uh, have torn our society apart that we're now trying to repair. Both This question is for both you and Liz. Do you see your work, your mission, if you will, as one is uh, trying to repair the breach in, in many different ways through theatrical performances um, or, or just just dialoguing with different people. So um, Gladys, if you'll start and answering that, and then I'll, I'll turn to Liz. I definitely see my mission as a mission of informing, but at the same time, trying to bridge the gap between us and them and make the audience understand 
that if we don't embrace our history and learn from our history, we are going to continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over. And to me, it's very, I, I use storytelling as a tool to create a safe space, a space in which we can talk about the issues, we can talk about the characters, and we can do that in such a way that will <clears throat> create, um, how do I wanna put it? That people will be less likely to feel guilty, to clam up. Uh, I, I, I don't want to, to present a story of accusations. I want to present a story of let's learn. Let's look at our history. Let's think about what caused us to be where we are today and how we can bridge the gap and change that. And you reach a lot of people that way. Now, there will be some that you will never reach. There are just some, sure. there are some people who are just mean and ugly and nasty. And no matter what you do, you are not going to bridge a gap or build a road of any sort uh, to, to, to getting that kind of person uh, to open his or her mind. Right. And that I, I realize. Yeah. But the most of the people, I believe, are not inherently nasty, mean, ugly, right. vicious people. And, and unfortunately, those that are, are sometimes in the minority, in, in the greater minority, but their voices tend to not be louder, but they capture the attention and limelight long enough people who watch in dismay began to hear it over and over and over again and then they began to kind of question their their value sets yeah. uh, Liz if you'll if you'll answer that as well well you know Gladys hit a lot of points that we want to educate for me I became just passionate about it and and sometimes when someone asked me a simple question. I go on and on and on and Gladys attacked me and go, you're preaching, aren't you? Because I'm so excited and so passionate about what I learned about Black folk. And it makes me feel real good. And I want to share what I've learned because here are people that have been oppressed and held down and they're victorious. They have done so much to make America what it is. Uh, you know, it, if you study black history, as they say, which is American history, you there's nothing but a sense of pride and accomplishments. And to think, you know, these are my people and they've done all of this and I didn't know about it. I get so excited about stuff I read. I go, okay, I gotta get in my car and I gotta go to where that happened so that I can put my feet where the feet of the people previous to me have been. Uh, for instance, Emmett Till, who started the civil rights movement. I had to go to where he walked and to where he died. And when people said, oh, do you don't, you don't want to tell Black history because their history is just so bad. It makes everybody feel bad. Uh, Emmett Till, I bet he felt kind of bad. I yeah, bet his feelings it. was hurt. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I don't look at it that way. I look at I want people to know and feel good 
about being an American and being an American in America, and there's no need to feel bad about it. I wished I had this passion and confidence and this feel good moments when I was a kid growing up, but we weren't taught anything. Didn't know anything. I'm self-taught by reading and then going to those locations. And to me, it's a pure joy and it gives me joy and pleasure to present stuff on stage or any way that Resilience Productions deem is worthy to present. Uh, we always have a talk back after every performance to give people an opportunity in a safe place, a loving place, I feel, that they can ask questions. And, and so it works for us. I think that what we do is just so important, especially if they're gonna take the studies of African-Americans out of the schools. If you're not telling the truth, we're telling the truth in a way that people sit and listen. They sit up, listen, and they pay attention. And it's very important. The, uh, the voice you just heard is Elizabeth Mitchell, my co-anchor for this evening, a long time Bring It On contributor. She produces a show, Dark Past, Bright Future, that you'll be hearing at the end of this interview. Um, and then also we've been hearing from Dr. Gladys DeBain, who is talking about her new book, Come Sit With Me. And it's just uh, an essay, uh, just full of essays of, of her life, of those impactful moments, those milestone moments in her life that have made her the woman that she is. Um, one thing, Dr. Devane, if you'll do me a favor, we have five minutes left. Will you promise me that you will help Liz write this book that she keeps alluding to? She keeps putting it off. And I'm and I'm almost I'm getting angry about it. Well, no, I'm not getting angry, but I, <laughs> I want her to to put her experiences because this woman has traveled and she says she's traveled. I don't think people understand the places that she's gone, plantations. Uh, she has uh, a an enormous uh, collection of Jim Crow memorabilia, mm -hmm. and uh, she just needs either a gentle nudge or um, if you got a baseball bat. No, 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 no. But she, she needs to be tied to a to a, in front of a PC and just put it out there, make the outlines. And, and if you could help her, if you could promise me you'll help her do that, I will I'll be over the moon. And you said get in that. front of a Thank PC you. to do it. Uh, I have to inform you, I write longhand. Gladys does the PC. That, that's all right. <laughs> that's all right. But but if you're chronicling and, and you're and I've learned, you know, I could carry a lot during the day thing, my task to do list. But the moment I start clearing up my brain on the paper, I could breathe better and I could start doing other things. But but you have a wealth of information back from growing up in Indianapolis. Yeah. Working in the US, United States postal system. I really travels. would like I really would like to see her write the story of the postal system, because some of the stories that she have told me about the her experience in the postal system are just mind-boggling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I kept a journal on that, so it shouldn't be difficult to do. And, and my last question as we wrap up, um, because this sort of involves how to get in touch to get the book, but why Jewel Jordan Publishing Company? Do you have a connection with them, or did you research them, or how did you come about going to Jewel Jordan Publishing Company? Uh, okay, um, disclaimer, 
Uh, Jill Jordan Publishing Company. The publisher is the sister of my brother's wife. Uh, they did a book entitled Ordinary Extraordinary uh, Women, uh, uh, African-American Women, The Elders. And in that book, they featured, they had 10 African-American women were featured who told their lives and they were ordinary women uh, that she felt that, that had done uh, extraordinary things. And I was one of, I was featured in that book and that's how I met her. Okay. So when I got ready to publish this book, I asked her if she was interested in publishing it and she said, yes. And so that's how I got to Jewel Jordan Publishing Company. It's, uh, it's a, a, a young publishing company uh, that is willing to work with you and help you along the way. And the most important thing is the owner of that uh, publishing company, uh, Stephana uh, Colbert, is an honest woman. And she is an attorney. She knows how to you know, navigate you know, through the system. Uh, and working with her was just wonderful. So that's how I got to Jewel Jordan Publishing Company. And Gladys, before we leave, will you talk about uh, what you're doing on the 29th of March? Okay, on the 29th of March, um, we are, uh, we are uh, doing a program for the Monroe County History Center. Charlie Nelms will be hosting the program uh, and it will be in celebration of Women's History Month. Um, and uh, it's part of a series that we're doing with the uh, History Center entitled, help me Liz, uh, distinct, um, um, women, not women of distinction. Uh, you did the interview. <laughs> yes. Well, like them. you said, it's part of Remarkable it. Women. Yes, Remarkable okay. Women. It's a part okay. of the Remarkable Women series. Yeah. And they are, they are, they, they are featuring my book, Come Sit With Me, and a remarkable woman from that book, mm -hmm. uh, Maddie Jacobs Fuller. And oh, Liz okay. will be Maddie Jacobs Fuller telling her okay. story. Okay. And I will be talking about my book and some of the things that I have. Uh, uh, done here in Bloomington and reading a poem uh, uh, to from my book. Well, on that note, uh, and I love live radio. Uh, what's the name of that? What's the name of that? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> our, our thanks to Gladys Devane, author of the work entitled Come Sit With Me, for joining us to share wonderful insights from her book, which she dedicates to the two strong, influential women who raised her, her grandmother and mother. Come Sit With Me is available at jeweljordanpublishing.com, jeweljordanpublishing.com, and digitally on Amazon. Welcome to Dark Past, Bright Future, lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook, telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. Good evening. This is Liz Mitchell with an another edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. Have you ever heard 
of the Catilda, a slave ship, the last slave ship to enter America. A bet was made and the deed was done. The last slave ship called the Catilda arrived in America and on it were 110 Africans one of whom went by the name of Kasala, a captured African man who at that moment became enslaved for five and a half years in Alabama, USA. The four men responsible for this last deal in human trafficking before the end of the Civil War were three brothers, Jim, Tim, and Burns Meir. They were natives of Maine, but had settled down in Alabama because they felt they could get rich from building ships. The fourth man was the captain of the Catilda, and his name was William Foster. The brothers bought and owned a shipyard and a mill in, on the Alabama River, where they built swift vessels. So they were known for building fast-moving uh, water vessels. In the late 1859, when the Catilda left America for Africa, it was the fastest boat that they had in their possession. It returned about May of 1860, making it to the Mobile River in Alabama. The captives were transferred from the Catilda to a steamboat that took them on up until the Alabama River to a plantation where they were put on shore. Now, when they put these slaves on shore, they had other slaves that held them in bondage. One of them went by the name of Jane, a trusted slave. The Catilda was burned to hide the evidence because at that time it was a crime. But nevertheless, the Mirror Brothers were tried in federal court only to be heavily fined for bringing in those Africans. The village that these Africans built after the emancipation was called Africantown, and today is known as Plateau, Alabama. Kasala was given the name Cujo, and after emancipation, he took the last name of Lewis. When he was interviewed by Zor Neil Hurston, he reminisced about his life in Africa. By the age of 14, he had trained as a soldier, which entailed mastering the skills of hunting, camping, tracking, and acquiring expertise in shooting arrows and throwing spears. He told Hurston about the pre-dawn raid on his village by the Lahomey's female warriors who slaughtered many of his relatives. They went in, these female warriors were fierce, and their male counterparts stood around the outer ring of his village and anyone trying to escape was decapitated. They wore the heads of uh, the persons that they decapitated around uh, their belts, around their waist, and en route to the West Coast to be to put their captives on the slave ships, they would smoke the head. And this put so much fear in all of the captives that, that they had never seen these kind of actions before. So that instilled fear in them before they even reached the, the western shores of Africa to the white settlers and captors that were there. By that time, the fear was so great, they were docile, didn't try to fight back and just boarded the ships like cattle. The U.S. had banned the importation of slaves in 1808, but the high demand for slave labor from the booming cotton trail was enough to encourage plantation owners to take a risk 
thus the reason the Meyer brothers did so. After being freed by Union soldiers in 1865, the Katilda survivors tried to return to Africa, but they didn't have enough money, even after pooling their wages together. So they decided to stay. So they sold fruit and vegetables, share crime, did whatever they could so that they were able to purchase land from the Meyer family. And they formed a society rooted in their beloved homeland traditions and called their new settlement African Town. What's powerful about African Town is the history, culture, and the heritage, but also shows the legacy of slavery and embedded racism in America along with the lack of compassion as it relates to the true history of enslaved Africans and their descendants in this country. Thank you for tuning in. Again, this is Elizabeth Mitchell with an edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. on has an open mission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at whb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Again, that email address is Bring it on at WFHB.org. Bring it on's executive producer is George Truly, Clarence Boone, and assistant producer is William Hosea. Show consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Kate Young, and program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil Ethiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition. Bring it on right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.